0: Our text this Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. For what purpose and end do we pray for the earthly needs of ourselves and others? Someone may respond by saying, Because we are required by the sixth commandment, to preserve our own life and the life of others. Well, this is certainly true. However, the chief end that should always be in view when we pray for the earthly needs of ourselves and others is the glory of God. If that for which we are praying will not be useful in promoting and extending Christ's kingdom, then we should not be praying for it. If in some way it does not contribute to the promotion of Christ's kingdom, we should not be praying for it. If what we desire God to provide for us is merely for our own creature comfort and convenience, without consideration of the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, our desires, I would submit to you, have become lustful, rather than righteous. Every earthly benefit should have in view that we live not for ourselves, but rather we live for Christ. Philippians one twenty one says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's an all-comprehensive statement about all of our life. For me to live in whatever I do is Christ. Christ should have some effect, some purpose, some motive to extend Christ's kingdom in what we do. Dear ones, all that we have in this world has been graciously given to us on loan to use for God's glory. It does not inherently belong to us. It is given to us on loan by the Lord. Things such as our food, our clothing, our shelter, our jobs, may be indifferent in and of themselves. But, dear ones, nothing is indifferent in how we use it. Whether, therefore, you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all. To the glory of God. At various points throughout the day, I would submit to you it is a very profitable exercise for us each one to stop ourselves and to ask, how does what I am doing right now promote, in some way, the cause of Christ? Or how shall what I propose to do promote the glory of God or the cause of Christ. It is true that Christ gives us all things to enjoy, but dear ones, to enjoy in glorifying Him and in enjoying Him, not merely heaping these benefits upon ourselves without any thought of how this will promote Christ's kingdom. How easy it is to live a thankless existence in excluding the Lord Jesus Christ from our food that we partake of, in the homes that we go into to find shelter at nights and during the day, the vehicles that we drive, the families that we have. It is very easy just to pass from one event to the next event throughout the day, unconscious of God's glory, of Christ's kingdom. And we're all guilty of that. It is a sin that I believe, perhaps above all, that we are so prone to fall into, to be so thankless, and so unconscious of promoting the kingdom of Christ in all that we do. Dear ones, let us be reminded this Lord's Day that it is Christ who is our provider, and He provides us with the necessities of life, and even with the uh, provides us with the comforts of life, so that we might indeed glorify Him, and enjoy Him, and extend His kingdom. From our text in Mark chapter six, verses thirty through forty-four. We shall consider the following main points today. First, the Lord provides rest for the weary, in Mark 6 verses 30 through 32. And second, the Lord provides food for the hungry, in Mark 6:33 through44. As we consider then the first point, the Lord provides rest for the weary, Note Mark 6, verses 30 through 32. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. As you will recall from a previous sermon in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 and following, the Lord had commissioned and sent out his apostles to preach that the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, was near to preach repentance, and to perform various signs and wonders to confirm the faith of those who believed. Well, here in Mark 6.30, the apostles now return after perhaps several weeks of ministry, and now they recount to Christ what they taught, the response of people, and the mighty deeds and wonders which God performed through them. Now, there are two parts about their return from this most recent ministry that I believe are worth noting here. The first part is this. The apostles as ministers of Christ were accountable to the head of the church for their ministry. The whole matter of accountability, I think, is an important part When they return, they relate and recount all that they had done and all that they had taught. You see, they had been commissioned by Christ. They had received the authority of Christ to preach and to perform miracles. They now return to receive, as it were, his approval as faithful servants entrusted with the priceless treasure of Christ's truth. Dear ones, we ought to live, each of us, in light of that great day of judgment, wherein we must finally give ourselves before God, we must give an account as servants of Christ. Not as ordained ministers of Christ, but nevertheless as servants of Christ, each of us who have been called to Christ. Christ. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, and the following verses after that, the Lord relates a parable there about a man who was leaving, traveling to a far country, and he called his servants unto himself, and delivered unto them his goods for which they were responsible to take care of, and the parable goes on to relate that he gave to uh, the various servants some five talents, he gave to another servant two talents, and to another one, one talent. And he left them and entrusted this talent with them, with the purpose of not returning the talents which he gave to them, but with the purpose of having invested, having caused those talents to have grown so that it would benefit, even to a larger degree, the master of the house. I would have you note, though, when the master returns and he does take Account of how each of the servants has handled the talents. That there really is no difference between the one who received the five talents and the one who received the two talents in that they were both given five more or two more. They were blessed according to the talents that they were given. They had offered to the Lord two more, and they received, therefore, the same blessing from the Lord. The Lord was pleased with the work. Even though they may have started off with different talents, they they doubled each their talents. But there was one, the last one, who had the one talent, and he returned that talent intact. Not having brought another talent... Not having given his master anything in addition to that. And the response of the master may seem quite surprising. The response of the master is, well, you could have done, it's not, you could have done better. The response of the master is to, to deliver him into outer darkness, into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because the servant had not utilized, because the servant had not caused what he had been given to grow in any respect, the master delivers him. And the the, the uh, uh, what the parable is teaching is that So likewise, the Lord will deliver those in that situation into the flames of hell and outer darkness. Dear ones, this is a very serious matter with the Lord. This issue of accountability. There is a day of accountability and reckoning coming. Are you living in light of that day? Are you meditating and thinking upon the gifts and the graces which God has given to you. You have no excuse, nor do I, the fact that we can look at someone else and say, but they have more talents than I have. That's not the issue, how many talents you have. The issue is, are you using the talents that God has given to you for His glory? And if you are not doing so, and if you have not done so, then you ought to be very, very concerned about that particular day of judgment. You ought to be shaking in your boots right now if you have not considered that awesome time that is coming. Every Christian has been apportioned graces such as faith, love, courage, humility, and self-control. No Christian has been left out of those graces. Granted, they are, grant, they are given in different proportions to each Christian, but every Christian has received the graces that God gives. In fact, he who is faithful in little, the Lord says, will be faithful in much. Don't be concerned about how little you have of certain graces use those graces to extend and promote Christ's kingdom and you will see, because you have shown yourself faithful in those, that He will add and multiply the graces that that you are to be given. Well if this is the case, what I have just indicated is the case with the Christian in general, how much more it is true of the Christian minister in particular. As we see in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13-15, through there is coming a day of accountability for all of those who have served as ministers of Jesus Christ. I fear, dear ones, that too many ministers forget this approaching day of judgment wherein our ministries will be thoroughly examined by the all-penetrating and fiery eyes of the Lord all the wood, hay, and stubble of a minister's own invention in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline will be burned, will be consumed in that fire on that day. And only the gold and the silver and the precious stones of Christ's doctrine, worship, government, and discipline will withstand that day of examination. Ministers should be leaders of the flock, setting the example in self-examination, not in self-exaltation. How we should be sure that we, who call ourselves ministers of Christ, have the authority of Christ in the doctrine which we preach, in the worship which we practice, and in the government and discipline which we administer. For, as Paul says, we can do nothing against the truth, but only that which is for the truth. We must be ever so diligent that we do not, like Saul, before his conversion, persecute Christ by persecuting, Through unjust censures and even excommunications, those who are faithfully standing for the truth. You know, this is done today when the faithful are unjustly censured for withdrawing from unfaithful churches that have introduced man centered doctrine. Worship and government contrary to the very commission of Christ in Matthew twenty-eight twenty, Teaching them, Jesus said, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. Only the things I have commanded you. Such unjust excommunications, I would submit, are a badge of reproach to the minister and elders in such cases, but a badge of honor to the faithful. The second part of this return of the apostles to Christ after this mission that they had been sent on is this, that the apostles were invited by Christ to rest after their return from ministry. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. In Mark 6.31 The Lord not only sent them out to minister, but also invited them to a more deserted, isolated place to be physically refreshed. And I would submit that here we find a warrant for lawful recreation and physical relaxation, not as ends in themselves, but as means to better serve the Lord with rested bodies and minds. This has been demonstrated in various studies in the workplace wherein those employees who are given brief breaks at various intervals throughout the day are actually more efficient and productive than those who take no breaks and work straight through the day. Certainly this principle may be abused where people want to only rest, want to only take breaks, stand around on their shovel all day long and talk. That's not the principle that we have in mind here, but certainly can be abused. And the same thing happens with uh, vacations. Some can take you know, six months or eight months of vacation and work two or three months or four months. That's not what we have in mind here as well. It should be, however, realized from the example of Christ that we find here, that he encouraged the disciples to cease from their labor for a time so as to be more effective in Christ's kingdom. Dear ones, this is not a principle, or this is a principle, I would submit, that is built into the fourth commandment itself. In Exodus chapter 20, As we look at the fourth commandment, notice this principle of rest. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Let us not forget what is the end of that rest. We cease from labor. Why? Why? in order to worship and in order to glorify God, in order to enjoy the Lord. The Sabbath is not only a day for physical rest, but even more importantly, the Sabbath is a day for spiritual rest and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Christ pulled the disciples aside from the hustle and bustle of their ministry, in order to spend some time with them, in order to relax, from all of the pressures that that were around them, people coming and going, the Scripture says. So likewise, the Lord pulls you aside on the Sabbath. He pulls you aside from your ordinary labors in order to spend this time with you, in order to have this time of communion and fellowship with you. Not just as we gather here, but the entire day. Is a day devoted to rest and to worship and to enjoy the Lord. And as we think of the rest that the Lord here calls the disciples to, we can't help but think of the invitation which the Lord extended to all who are weary and heavy laden. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, the Lord indicated. Rest from your own works of righteousness. Rest from your sins. Rest from the guilt and the shame of sin. Cast all of your cares upon him. See, we have this privilege to come and he promises that rest and that peace of mind. And this, I think, is also uh, a, a message which we should take from the fact that the Lord wanted to pull these disciples, these apostles aside and to give them rest. And ultimately, the rest that we look forward to is the rest of heaven. That peace. Resting from sin once and for all. Resting from all temptation. Resting from those besetting sins in our lives. From the sorrow and the grief of this life. What a joy to contemplate and to reflect upon the, 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 uh, what heaven must be like. Not to struggle any longer with those temptations that so easily beset us now. What a joy to think that we will have unhindered fellowship and communion with the Lord. That the things that so easily distract us now, the various cares of this life, will not be cares anymore. And to just simply enjoy the Lord, to commune with the Lord, to learn of the Lord forever and ever For here, the Lord provides for both body and soul to his apostles, not as an end in itself, but as a means, the end of glorifying him and enjoying him. And as I said, here is the divine purpose of vacations, lawful recreations, and our earthly Sabbaths. The Lord not only provides rest for his people... As we have noted in the first main point. but secondly, the Lord provides food for the hungry. In Mark chapter six verses 33 through 34, the word of God continues by saying, "And the people saw them departing, and many knew him and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and out went them, and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion towards them because they were as sheep, not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread, and give them to eat? He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, Five and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all Sit down by companies upon the green grass, and they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all, and they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men. As Christ and the apostles made their way to a remote location in order to find that time of peace and relaxation, the uh, multitude happened to see the direction that they were uh, sailing And they took off by land to the point where they believed that they would approximately be landing. And uh, either met them or soon after found the Lord. So that the actual time of relaxation and peace for which the Lord had planned and intended to spend with his disciples was uh, at this point interrupted. Was the Lord upset? Uh, was the Lord uh, uh, angry with the people? Uh, did He uh, try and scold the people and send them away because they were needy? In no way. As He saw them approaching, this, mult- this vast multitude, so He saw them coming perhaps along the shore, or over the hills, The image that was brought to the Lord's attention is they're like a lot of scattered sheep who have no shepherd. And the Lord, the Scripture says, was moved with compassion upon them. He was not impatient with them. He was not harsh with them. But rather, He was compassionate and sympathetic with them. For they... We're starving for the bread of life. And the Lord was about to illustrate in a way they couldn't possibly have imagined that He is the bread of life who gives life to the world. Dear ones, without compassion for people, without a willingness to be inconvenienced for the flock, without a desire to sacrifice one's life for the sheep, a man, no matter how knowledgeable he may be of the Scriptures, that man cannot lead the sheep, for the sheep won't follow such a man unless the sheep know that that man cares for them. You know, as sheep, we instinctively follow those whom we know have our best interests at heart. We may not always appreciate immediately what a faithful minister or a faithful elder may say to us because it takes us out of our comfort zones. But the truth of Christ administered in love and with compassion is indeed true food for the soul. And the sheep will come to appreciate even the honesty and even the the loving rebuke and correction that's administered by faithful shepherds. The multitudes continued to listen to the Lord as He taught them. And they, they were so spiritually hungry for the truth which was being given to them that they lost track of time. The day was hastening on. They weren't even following the sun. They weren't looking at the clock. They were engrossed in what the shepherd was saying. They wanted to hear more because they were starving. They were hungering for the bread of life. Their spiritual appetite had conquered their physical appetite. And dear ones, I would submit to you this is the appetite for which we should all pray. We should all be like hungry sheep when we come to worship. When the sermon begins, we should be ready through prayer and meditation. As the sermon is preached... We should be feasting upon the word of the Lord. We should be meditating upon the things that are said, reflecting in various ways as application is made, thinking of our own needs, thinking of how we can minister to others, thinking of how we can learn more of Christ. And as the sermon ends, that we should be crying in the soul, in our souls, that God would apply the word to our lives, that he would hide it in our lives, that we would love it and teach it to others, and that we would be crying, O Lord, more food, more food, give me more. You see, this is the attitude of one who hungers for truth for the knowledge of Christ. These people, expressed by their desire to continue to hear the word of God coming from Christ, that they were hungering. The parallel passage in John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, actually states that Christ first put the question about the people's need for food at this late hour to one of his apostles, namely Philip. The question was stated in this manner to Philip by the Lord. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Interesting question. Jesus was testing Philip, no doubt, because it says in the very next verse, um, verse 6, and this he said to prove him, that is to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, Philip apparently took that little question that Jesus had asked him, and he went and spoke with the other apostles and put the idea into their mind, you know, it's getting late here, uh, what are we going to do about all these people? They're going to be sent out famished and, uh, you know, and have a lot of problems as they uh, make their way home. It's not just like going around the corner back home after worship service or getting into our cars and driving home. They had a distance to walk because this was a remote location, Remember? Just as Jesus tested Philip in putting the question to him, here he tests all of the apostles in Mark 6.37. For we find that the apostles then come back to the Lord, and they say to the Lord... This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Now here is the test which the Lord puts to all of the disciples in verse 37. And he answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. In other words, you feed them. You feed them. I'm sure that they thought that he meant you pay for the food for them. You go purchase the necessary food. It's within that particular context. Uh, for they said, uh, verse 37 says, and they say unto him, shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? So that's what they're thinking. The Lord is saying, you come up with the, food, or with the money to go purchase the food and bring it back to them. 200 penny worth of bread would be 200 days of an average man's wages. That's how much they were, in effect, saying. And I did a little bit of math uh, to, uh, I think, minimum wage is around $6 an hour. Um, That uh, would uh, uh, compute out to 200 days to approximately $10,000. And so, uh, this was about the amount of money uh, to them that the Lord was saying, you know, you go and pay for, for uh, enough bread to feed these people. <clears throat> I'm sure they thought uh, in their hearts, who has that kind of money? Certainly not us. Lord, you're asking the impossible here. And uh, in a sense, so he was. The reason for asking of them the impossible was to demonstrate that that which is impossible with men is possible with God. It was intended to remind them that though they had cast out demons and performed many miracles, though they had preached the kingdom of Christ and had witnessed the power of God in changing lives, It was to remind them that they had no power in themselves. That their power, their authority came from the Lord. That they couldn't depend upon their own human resources to live a life of faith as a Christian or as a minister of the gospel. The power, the authority, and the life which flowed from them in word and deed was that of Christ. And the miracle Christ intended to perform here would bear abundant testimony to this truth. So often the Lord brings us to the uh, end of our own resources, does He not? As we're going along in our Christian life, and we see various trials arise, various afflictions, trials of faith, and we just feel like, Lord, I can't go on any longer. I can't press on any longer. Intervene. Bring help. And just at, as it were, one minute till midnight, the Lord brings in such a marvelous answer to prayer. How many times have we seen this in time and time again in our own lives? As we reflect back, the Lord seems to do this in our lives. Why? To bring us to the end of our own confidence in uh, in our own resources. To bring us to the end of trusting self and trusting man so as to cast us entirely upon himself. The Apostles... As they went out amongst the multitude, found a young lad who had brought with him five small barley loaves and two fish for his meal, according to John 6, verse 9. But, you know, what was that? The apostles, in bringing it to the Lord, uh, in effect say, but what is this amongst so many people? Uh, Still, having, having been themselves involved in the various miracles, you know, that they performed as they went out into, into the cities of the Jews, still look at the weakness of their faith. And in, I believe um, uh, that we will see even subsequently uh, that they forget so quickly that this miracle, after Jesus performs this miracle, they forget so quickly about the power of Christ. They find themselves in a situation where they fear and they, the scripture very explicitly says they had hardened their hearts concerning the miracle which Christ performed in multiplying the bread. Amazing Uh, that they had pushed that miracle out of their lives. And don't we do the same thing? All of the things which God has given to us by way of testimony in his word by way of having met, us, uh, met our needs in the past, and when we come up against a new trial, how easy it is to push all of that evidence and all of that testimony out of our minds and to fall back merely upon the immediate context and feeling to- totally helpless. How we are, dear ones, so disposed to unbelief and not trusting the Lord. How we need to pray. Seek God's forgiveness for our unbelief. It's interesting that the Lord takes this small little, as you might call it, an offering, five little barley loaves and two fish from a little boy. And that's what he chooses to multiply. Again, I... I simply say to all of you, children, young people, adults, I say to all of you, it is not how much you offer to the Lord. If that's all you have, either by way of gifts or graces, the Lord is great enough to use it and bless it and multiply it to His glory. We read how uh, we sang from Psalm 8, how God confounds His enemies by, this, by, by the uh, words of even babes today. How big is our God? If God can do that through babes, if God can take even this small gift, can He use your gifts? Absolutely. And He will if you offer to them to Him. If you do not despise your gifts because you do in fact despise them when you continually belittle what God has given to you. You despise the gifts that God has given to you. It doesn't mean we should be proud but it means that we should use whatever God has given to us for His glory. Well, The Lord then ordered the disciples to seat the multitude in orderly companies of fifties and hundreds on the grassy hillside so that they could all witness this miracle that he was about to perform before their very eyes. And the Lord took the five loaves and the two fish in his hand, and he gave thanks to the Lord for these to his father. And then he broke, the scripture says, he broke the bread into pieces and he gave the fish and the bread to his disciples now we don't we're not told specifically how this miracle occurred did the miracle occur as the bread was and the fish were in Christ's hands did it begin to multiply while it was in his hands so that as he took one out there was another one as he took one out, there was another one. Did it happen while after he had given it into the hands of the apostles that it multiplied in their hands? We're not told. But nevertheless, it was a miracle which was visible to all. Can you imagine looking on and seeing bread and fish multiply? Amazing! Absolutely amazing. And there was such an abundance of bread and fish that the scripture says that 5,000 men plus women and children ate to their complete satisfaction and they still gathered up 12 baskets more full of food. You see, the Lord would illustrate to us there He not only Is able to supply our needs. He is able abundantly to supply our needs. He's able. He has such resources that there is an overflow of grace and mercy. We can never exhaust the grace and the mercy of Christ, no matter how much we use every day. It's never the more empty. It only continues to grow and to be multiplied. The Lord miraculously fed Israel in the wilderness with manna for their earthly sustenance. And likewise, Christ declares by this miracle that he is the same mighty God that fed Israel, who now miraculously feeds this multitude by multiplying the bread and the fish. He's in effect saying the same God who rained down manna from heaven, I am the same God, I am Jehovah, I am the creator, I am the bread of life. Beloved, if Christ can provide food miraculously for his people when they hunger, as in this case, as in sending manna to Israel, he can certainly provide food by ordinary means for his people when they hunger. This miracle should have the effect of turning us to Christ to satisfy all of our needs, to take nothing for granted, to give Him all praise and thanksgiving for His daily provision, for He is indeed the provider. And we are the recipients of His benefits. I would would caution us certainly that Christ does use means most often, to give to us his provision. But, dear ones, it is the same Christ who supplies what we need, whether he uses means or he doesn't use means. It's the same Lord. It comes from the same Almighty God. Let us not belittle the gift because it comes through ordinary means and not through miraculous means let us be as thankful as if it came to us miraculously. Because it comes from the same love of God for His people and supplying all of their needs. According to John 6, the Lord Jesus explained that He was the bread of life. The barley loaves and the fish which Christ created did not satisfy or sustain the life of these people for weeks or months or years to come. However, they pointed, that bread pointed to one who does miraculously or has miraculously come down from heaven in order to give eternal life to all who eat of him by faith not in some carnal or fleshly sense as abominably taught by the Romish church. Just as the disciples came to the end of their resources to feed the multitudes, so must we as ministers of Christ come to the end of our resources in feeding the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. We only give as we preach. We only give the bread of life ministerially. We are not giving our life to save. It is we are teaching and ministering and proclaiming the life of one who came from heaven to save. And so we cannot exalt ourselves. The apostles, as they handed out the bread that day, could they look to themselves and take pride and boast in what they had done? Absolutely not. No more can a minister who gives the bread of life through the gospel of salvation take glory in what he's done. If someone comes to a saving knowledge of Christ or as those grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, for he is only a minister. Dear ones, I close by reminding you, Jesus Christ is not merely a part of our life. Jesus Christ is the Christian's life. He cannot merely be a part of your life. That is one thing Christ will not be. He will not merely be a part of a person's life. He is our life. We must grow in our understanding of that truth. That is why he came down from heaven to become our life. He is the provider of all that we need both physically, whether it's rest or whether it's our daily bread whether it's a job whatever it is, health He is our provider but He is especially the provider for our spiritual rest and for our spiritual food. Let us then Come to Him today as His people and avail ourselves of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. Will you please stand with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we praise Thee again for the truth of Thy Word, which has been made known to us this day by Thy Spirit. We thank Thee for opening our eyes and helping us to see, O Lord, our sin and how we so often will not accept the testimony of Thy Word or the testimony even in our life. And how thou hast ministered time and time again to us and supplied our needs. But we choose rather to fall back upon our fears and our worries rather than trusting thee, resting in thee, believing that thou wilt continue to provide for us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Cause us this day to see the Lord Jesus as the one who delights to provide for us and who has provided that which we needed most. And because of that, He will certainly provide for that which we need less. We pray, Father, that Thou would would, uh, cast us afresh and anew upon our Savior this day to find in Him one who more than abundantly supplies what we need. Help thou in belief today. Forgive us, O Lord, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale